Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Thursday, May 18th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Adam Clark. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. The CIA pushes to recruit Russian spies. Ecuador's president dissolves Congress. The United Kingdom and Netherlands want a coalition for Ukraine fighter jets. Four are killed in Nigeria in an attack on a U.S. embassy convoy. The North Carolina legislature enacts an abortion ban. Liz Truss visits Taiwan. Maryland tests the Supreme Court's gun laws. Eight in 10 South African children reportedly struggle to read. The Biden administration approves a key oil pipeline. And Oxfam says wealthy nations owe a whopping $13 trillion in climate pledges. In our top story, the CIA releases a video recruiting Russian spies. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, NBC, Yahoo Entertainment, CNN, and Reuters. The CIA has reportedly released a professionally produced video to multiple social media platforms aimed at recruiting Russian citizens, specifically military officials, intelligence agents, diplomats, and scientists, to reveal information about their country's economy and government. The two-minute video made in Russia and first published on Telegram on Monday was also posted on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. It depicts fictional Russian officials covertly contacting the CIA via the agency's secure portal on the dark web. Captioned, quote, Why I made contact with the CIA, my decision. The video uses dramatic music and suspense to set the stage for a Russian official staring at a picture of his family before contacting the CIA. It also appeals to a strong Russian identity as the man contemplates, quote, Is it the kind of life I dreamt of? combined with platitudes about heroism. This is just the latest report of U.S. intelligence attempting to recruit disillusioned Russians, as it used a text-based campaign to recruit them last year. A CIA official said the recruitment was successful and that the agency would not be pursuing similar action without prior success. However, the official didn't mention how many Russians have allegedly contacted the CIA. David Marlowe, the CIA's Director of Operations, said that the U.S. is open for business and wants to show Russians, disgusted with the situation, how to reach out. The FBI has also engaged in similar recruitment projects. Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said he hasn't paid attention to the video, but is confident in the way Russia's special services are monitoring this space, with Moscow saying on Tuesday that it's watching Western spy activities. Thank you, Eric. On this show, we separate the facts from the narrative spins. Eric just laid out the facts for that story. I'm going to start off our first round of narrative spins with a pro-Russian narrative provided by TASS. The Russian people are far too smart to be persuaded by these dramatized videos that are part of the continued efforts of the U.S. to spread propaganda in Russia. This campaign will not be effective, and Russia will keep taking the necessary steps to counteract the U.S. aggression. The anti-Russian narrative comes from the Ad Reader app. This CIA video is a brilliant appeal to truth and a plea for earnest Russians to follow their conscience. Many Russians know the war in Ukraine is wrong, and they face an internal struggle between so-called patriotism and yearning for peace. 
This video shows that a Russian can work with the American intelligence agencies while being patriotic and working for a better future. And there's also a narrative C on this story provided by the Daily Beast. Besides the incredible double standards of the U.S. that schemes like this reveal, they're unlikely to have any success. Such a brazen plot not only risks scaring off some would-be informants who may be weary of a digital operation or suspect a Russian trap, but will also only spur Russia to ramp up its own counterintelligence efforts, making it harder to recruit assets. What they're not saying about that two-minute video is that it starts with a Rocky and Bullwinkle cartoon. Well, Eric, isn't that originally how you got hired on the Improve the News podcast? Absolutely, yes. I watched a Rocky and Bullwinkle cartoon, and I was in. I was referring to the FBI uh, text, but yeah, that's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Want to help us improve the news? Go to www.improvethenews.org forward slash pod. Take a quick survey and tell us what you think. Now back to the news. News out of Ecuador, where President Lasso dissolves Congress and calls for elections. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Financial Times, BBC News, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, Al Jazeera, and CNN. Ecuadorian President Guillermo Lasso on Wednesday announced the unprecedented triggering of a constitutional mutual death clause to dissolve the legislature and call for snap general elections, which will take place in the coming months. Following the dissolution of the opposition-led National Assembly, Ecuador's influential confederation of indigenous groups has deemed the order dictatorial. Ecuador's military, however, vowed not to tolerate violent unrest, recognizing the legitimacy of the move that will allow Lasso to govern the country by decree for up to six months until new elections are held. This presidential order, which took effect immediately, comes as the embattled conservative leader became the first president to face an impeachment trial since the country's return to democracy in 1979. Impeachment proceedings began on Tuesday, as a majority of lawmakers supported a motion stating that he overlooked alleged embezzlement related to oil shipping contracts despite a congressional oversight committee not recommending to pursue the charge. Lasso, who took the office in 2021, has been facing growing calls for his resignation in recent months, with the opposition and indigenous organizations accusing him of negligence amid a cost-of-living crisis and mounting criminal violence. Adam, thank you for the facts of that story. Our first spin is a left narrative, coming from Telesure English. Lasso has illegally prevented himself from being impeached in the coming days, But by doing so, he is offering a golden opportunity for the Ecuadorian people to vote him out of office, recover the country, and lower tensions. While he will be able to govern by decree for six months without the legislative checks and balances, the law does not allow Lasso to do anything he wants. This is an authoritarian move by Lasso, but there's a pathway toward a brighter future. That's followed up with a right narrative provided by Breitbart. Despite claims that this is an illegal order, it was the radical leftist authoritarian Rafael Correa who enshrined Article 148, which requires only an executive order to trigger this move in the Constitution. This decree is justifiable as the opposition camp has long sought to drag Ecuador into a political crisis to depose the democratically elected government, fueling unrest and activating 14 impeachment trials. Well, if this doesn't work out for him, he can always become a cattle wrestler. 
a cattle wrestler. How do you figure? Lasso. <laughs> In our next story, the United Kingdom and Netherlands agree on an international coalition for Ukraine fighter jets. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Guardian, the official government website of the United Kingdom, and Barons. The leaders of Britain and the Netherlands, Rishi Sunak and Mark Root, have agreed to build an international coalition to help Ukraine acquire F-16 fighter jets, the British government announced late on Tuesday. A spokesperson for Sunak's office said the leaders would work to build an international coalition to provide Ukraine with combat air capabilities, supporting with everything from training to procuring F-16 jets. The announcement came after Sunak and Root met at a Council of Europe summit in Iceland on Tuesday. It also came after Ukrainian President Zelensky traveled to Britain and met with Sunak on Monday. Reacting to the announcement, Zelensky said it was, quote, a good start to the coalition. Thank you all. However, the UK does not operate the U.S.-made F-16 fighter jet produced in South Carolina by the defense contractor Lockheed Martin. The UK and Holland will have to persuade the U.S. to agree on any transfers of the plane to Ukraine, something the U.S. has been reluctant to approve out of fear of an escalation with Moscow. Asked on Monday whether the U.S. had changed its position on supplying fighter jets to Ukraine, the White House's National Security Council spokesman John Kirby responded with one word, no. Thanks for the facts, Eric. We're starting off with an anti-Russian narrative provided by the European Council on Foreign Relations. Russia is inflicting vast air superiority in the war in Ukraine. If Ukraine is to reclaim its territory and establish an effective missile defense strategy, it must be supplied with modern fighter jets to rival those of Russia. A pro-Russian narrative comes from TASS. The more that Western countries provide Ukraine with weapons, the more that Russia considers them as direct participants in this conflict. The West's actions are not only dragging out this conflict, but also leading to a serious risk of escalation. And from time to time, we get statistics-based nerd narratives provided by our friends at the Metaculous Prediction community. They've got one on this story that says there's a 70% chance that a NATO country will commit to sending at least one F-16 fighter jet to Ukraine before 2024. They're not getting my fighter jet. Neither will I get mine. I, I just... I love my. I don't know about yours, but I've been using a new fuel in mine, and it's getting it's getting way better mileage. I just use mine for like little little jaunts around the neighborhood, you know, like going to the store to get milk and things like that. It's it's so convenient. It really is. You know what? I've seen pictures of yours. I, I had no idea that you had a pink one. I got it detailed last week. Yeah, it looks great. <laughs> Thanks. I'm getting yeah. I'm getting hot pink stripes next week after that. That's great. It makes it look faster. It sure does. Turning our attention to news out of Nigeria, where four have been killed in an attack on a U.S. embassy convoy. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Daily Post, Nigeria, Guardian, CNN, DW.com, and Associated Press. On Tuesday, gunmen attacked a convoy of U.S. embassy staff near the town of Atani in Nigeria's southeastern Anambra state, killing four people and abducting three others, according to local police and U.S. officials. There were no U.S. citizens in the convoy, which was on a humanitarian mission, the Anambra Police Command said, announcing that the gunmen killed two mobile police officers and two consulate employees before setting their bodies and vehicles ablaze. 
While security forces were dispatched to the scene, the assailants managed to kidnap two police officers and a driver, a police spokesman said, adding that a rescue and recovery operation has been underway as of Tuesday evening. Meanwhile, the U.S. National Security Council confirmed that no Americans were involved or injured in the ambush, with the U.S. State Department saying that embassy personnel are cooperating with Nigerian security services to investigate the matter. Nigerian authorities frequently blame the indigenous people of Biafra, or the IPOB, a separatist group seeking its own state whose leader is jailed for treason for allegedly escalating violent incidents in the region. However, IPOB denies any responsibility for recent attacks. The convoy assault came after survivors and authorities said Tuesday that gunmen attacked three villages in Plateau State in north-central Nigeria on Monday, raiding homes and killing at least 29 people, adding to Nigeria's security crisis that has left thousands dead. Those were the facts, and our first spin is an establishment critical narrative coming from the People's Gazette. This horrific assault once again highlights the enormous challenges facing Nigeria's security authorities. However, while the motive for this attack remains unclear, the U.S. Embassy needs to answer the obvious question of why it allowed a convoy on a humanitarian mission to enter violence-torn Anambra without consulting local police or any security agency. Such negligent actions hamper the battle against insurgents in the country. That's followed up with a pro-establishment narrative provided by Premium Times. The tragic incident must be fully investigated by Nigeria's authorities, but will have no lasting impact on the close U.S.-Nigeria relations. Rather, Washington stands ready to further strengthen mutually beneficial ties with the new Bola Tinubu administration. Nigeria deserves inclusive leadership that takes into account the interests of all its citizens, and comprehensive bilateral security cooperation will contribute to the country's stability and prosperity. And Narrative C is being provided by The Conversation. The latest attacks illustrate that Nigeria's incoming government under Tinubu, a Muslim from the Northeast, will face daunting challenges in managing various armed conflicts and deep societal divisions. While ethnic and religious tensions in the north-central region are likely to intensify, violence in the north is more likely to diminish, whereas Biafra separatists are set to continue their armed campaign for independence in the southeast. The security crisis will continue to shape Nigeria's future. Turning our attention back to the U.S. as North Carolina GOP overrides a veto of 12-week abortion ban. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, Reuters, BBC News, CBS, and Politico. North Carolina's Republican-controlled General Assembly on Tuesday voted to override Governor Roy Cooper's veto of a bill that would ban most abortions after 12 weeks of pregnancy, reduced from a prior 20-week restriction. The ban applies to elective abortions except in the instance of rape, incest, life-limiting fetal anomalies, and medical emergencies in the first trimester. The law also includes funding for foster and child care, as well as paid parental leave. The Care for Women, Children, and Families Act passed the General Assembly earlier this month, but Cooper vetoed it Saturday. The state Senate voted 30 to 20, and the House voted 72 to 48 to override the veto. Beyond the 12-week ban, the law requires post-12-week abortions to occur in a hospital, 
and requires verification of the gestational age by a physician. Clinics performing abortions will have additional licensing requirements, and mothers will be required to visit a clinic and receive counseling. Since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last June, every state south of Virginia and east of New Mexico has implemented or passed new abortion restrictions. North Carolina had been the last holdout. Thank you, Eric. We're going to start off with a Democratic narrative spin provided by The Guardian. This law is the latest blow struck by Republicans against women's rights, despite the unpopularity of the party's abortion policies. With North Carolina serving as the last bastion of abortion access for many living in the region, women's lives are now at greater risk, and many families will be put in precarious positions moving forward. The Republican narrative comes from Town Hall. These common-sense abortion regulations are baselessly being characterized as a threat to women's health. If it were up to Democrats, there would be no limits on abortions. But Republicans are making sure there are, and the ones that do happen are safer. Most abortions performed in the state are within the 12-week limit anyway. So this law shouldn't be deemed extreme, as the governor called it. And we're going to wrap up this story with a nerd narrative from our friends at the Metaculous Prediction community that says there's a 5% chance that elective abortion will be banned nationally in the U.S. before 2030. Truss visits Taiwan and urges the West to counter China. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Telegraph, Guardian, BBC News, Daily Mail, Reuters, and Sky News. Former British Prime Minister Liz Truss on Wednesday called for the West to choose between appeasing Beijing or taking action to prevent war, arguing that a new Cold War has already started. Speaking at the Taiwanese think tank Prospect Foundation as part of her five-day visit to the self-ruling island, she urged free nations to commit themselves to a free Taiwan and work together to create an economic NATO to counter China. Truss suggested that G7 nations, members of the EU, South Korea, and Australia should join forces to get things done, claiming that neither the UN Security Council nor the World Trade Organization are reliable to enforce international rules. She also pressured her successor Rishi Sunak to urgently make good on tough commitments he made before taking office, including closing all the Confucius Institutes in the UK and describing China as Britain's biggest long-term threat, as Sunak has so far adopted a robust pragmatism toward Beijing. Truss is the most high-profile British politician to visit Taiwan since the late Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher in the 1990s. China described her trip to the island, which comes as tensions have mounted in the strait, as a dangerous political move that could harm Britain. Thank you, Adam, for the facts of that story. We begin our spins with an anti-China narrative coming from Express. It should be obvious to everyone right now that China cannot be trusted to follow the rules. Free and democratic nations must cooperate to protect Taiwan in the face of a PRC blockade or invasion, as the future of the self-ruling island is intertwined with core Western values. Similar to the Ukraine war, the West has a collective responsibility to back Taiwan and hold Beijing accountable for its wrongdoing. That's going to be followed up with the pro-China narrative provided by Global Times. This flagrant interference in China's domestic affairs has been a full-blown fiasco, 
both to the shortest-serving prime minister ever in the UK and to Taiwan's Democratic Progressive Party authorities. Truss has become a troublemaker, criticized even by her conservative allies. Posturing as getting tough with Beijing can only aggravate internal problems in the West. And there's a nerd narrative coming from Metaculous Prediction Community. It says there is a 30% chance China will launch a full-scale invasion of Taiwan by the year 2030. In our next story, Maryland signs new laws on concealed carry and handguns. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Washington Post, Al Jazeera, Associated Press, CBS, and Fox News. In response to a U.S. Supreme Court ruling last June that limited the power of states to restrict the concealed carrying of firearms, Maryland Governor Wes Moore, a Democrat, signed into law Tuesday new restrictions on the concealed carry of firearms in the state and handgun licensing. The National Rifle Association has already sued to block the law. The law prohibits guns from being carried in schools, hospitals, government buildings, stadiums, and places where alcohol is served, as well as on private property without permission. It also removes the previous requirement of showing, quote, good and substantial reason to carry concealed guns outside of the home, language that was struck down by the Supreme Court. A separate measure amends the state procedure for issuing handgun licenses, raising the minimum age from 18 to 21, and prohibits individuals with substantial histories of mental illness and violent behavior, as well as those on probation or with protective orders against them from applying for licenses. At the bill signing, Moore stated that, quote, gun violence is tearing apart the fabric of our communities, reiterating that his government will refuse to back down on its gun control agenda. The NRA calls the measures, quote, illegal under the U.S. Constitution. This comes as the Supreme Court has affirmed the right to carry firearms for self-defense outside of the home. Since the Supreme Court's New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin ruling, approvals for concealed carry permits in Maryland has skyrocketed. Gun control advocacy group Every Town for Gun Safety highlights Maryland as a state with above-average gun deaths, despite stringent gun control legislation. Thank you, Eric. We're going to start off with a Republican narrative spin provided by Bearing Arms. This is not a Maryland problem, but rather a Baltimore problem. Despite the state's existing age restrictions on gun ownership, male juveniles have wreaked havoc on the city, making it one of the most dangerous in the country. Maryland has some of the strictest background checks in the nation, but that too has not led to fewer crimes. The real issue here is violent young criminals. Taking guns away from law-abiding citizens won't do anything to stop that. We counter that with a Democratic narrative coming from AllianceForJustice.org. A conservative activist Supreme Court has expanded gun rights to an unprecedented extent, forcing states to try and find workable solutions to the gun crisis in the U.S. A torrent of legal cases in the wake of the Bruin ruling has upended gun control as we know it undoing decades of progress on gun control amid an epidemic of violence and mass shootings. Maryland should be applauded for trying to find a path forward to keep Americans safe. In a recent study, 81% of 10-year-old South Africans are struggling to read. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, WION, Voice of America, News 24, and Africa News. According to a study published Tuesday which tested the reading ability of 400,000 students globally, 
eight out of ten ten-year-old schoolchildren in South Africa struggle with reading comprehension. The literacy of nine and ten-year-old fourth graders in South Africa ranked last out of 57 countries assessed in the 2021 Progress in International Reading Literacy Study, or the PEARLS, scoring 288 points compared with the international average of 500. While South Africa's child literacy rate observed by the PEARLS in 2016 was 78%, the 2021 study shows that 81% of South African children struggle to read in any of the country's 11 official languages. The study also shows that more than 30% of South African children entering second grade don't know the alphabet. The country's education minister, Angie Motshikaga, blamed the disappointingly low findings on historical challenges, including poverty, inequality, and inadequate infrastructure, as well as school closures due to COVID. Furthermore, Motshikaga admitted that reading instruction in mainly primary schools often focuses solely on oral performance, neglecting reading comprehension and the meaning of written words. Adam, thanks for the facts of that story. Our first spin is Narrative A coming from UNICEF.org. The negative and dire consequences of the pandemic erased a decade of progress in reading outcomes and put breaks on the government's program to improve primary education. In addition, unprecedented disruptions resulted in severe loss of teaching time for children at a crucial stage of their developmental journey. There's also a narrative B provided by African News. It's unfair to blame COVID as multiple factors, including a lack of textbooks and libraries, inadequate infrastructure, and significant inequality between black and white students are responsible for the long-standing education crisis in South Africa. The country has also been marked by the poor education imposed on the majority black population, who are partly illiterate and find it challenging to help their children learn to read. And the Metaculous Prediction community is giving us a nerd narrative. They say there's a 50% chance that South Africa's GDP per capita PPP will be at least 12300 in 2030. In our next story, the Biden administration grants Mountain Valley Pipeline permit. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Truth Out, U.S. News & World Report, Fox News, ABC News, and Associated Press. On Monday night, the Biden administration permitted the $6.6 billion Mountain Valley Natural Gas Pipeline to run through the Jefferson National Forest, which runs between West Virginia and Virginia. This comes after the U.S. Forest Service earlier in the day reissued its approval to construct the long-delayed pipeline across a 3.5-mile or 5.6-kilometer forest corridor in Monroe County, West Virginia, and Giles and Montgomery Counties, Virginia. The Biden administration supports Senator Joe Manchin's bill to speed fossil fuel and renewable energy projects, saying it would aid renewable energy companies to reap the benefit of billions of dollars of tax credits provided in the Inflation Reduction Act. The 303-mile or 487-kilometer pipeline is expected to transport about 2 billion cubic feet per day of natural gas from West Virginia to consumers in the Mid- and South Atlantic regions of the U.S., in previous litigation, the 4th U.S. Court of Appeals has twice vacated U.S. Forest Service decisions allowing the pipeline to be constructed in the Jefferson National Forest. However, 
The U.S. Forest Service claims the amended plan will permit the project to move forward while, quote, minimizing environmental impacts to soils, water, scenery, and other resources. Eric, thank you. We're going to start off a narrative A spin from Fox News. The construction of new wind, solar, and other renewable energy projects is part of the Biden administration's ambitious climate agenda as extreme weather events strain the U.S. energy system. Adequate national gas pipeline, such as the Mountain Valley Pipeline, and transmission capacity are critical to maintaining energy reliability, availability, and security. This project will help to increase America's energy security. Narrative B comes from CommonDreams.org. The Mountain Valley Pipeline violates regulations to control erosion and sedimentation threatens endangered species and waterways, and can potentially destroy sensitive land and ecosystems. It will generate tens of millions of metric tons of greenhouse gas emissions each year. The U.S. must stop its construction if Biden's top priority is to constrain global warming and advance environmental justice. This project puts the thirst for energy ahead of the health of our planet. And there's a nerd narrative that says there's a 50% chance that fossil fuels will make up less than 50% of the United States' primary energy consumption by August 2043. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. Our final story today comes from a report regarding wealthy nations that owe $13 trillion in climate pledges. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Washington Post, RFI, and Voice of America. On Wednesday, the British nonprofit Oxfam said wealthy nations owe poorer nations $13 trillion in development aid to combat the effects of climate change. Instead of paying the debt, wealthy nations are demanding these nations pay $232 million per day in debt payments owed. As the 2022 COP27 summit concluded, there was hope that there would be aid for poorer nations with the creation of a fund designed to help those nations suffering from climate change. No payments to the fund had been made by wealthier nations. Following COP27, the president of the COP28 summit, Sultan bin Ahmed Al-Jabir of the United Arab Emirates, urged the world to triple its commitments to clean energy. Technology for Transitioning to Clean Energy, and the Adaptation Measures in Developing Nations by 2030. The current pledge, dating back to 2009 at COP15, is $100 billion. In Oxfam's statement, the interim executive director, Amitabh Bihar, said wealthy G7 countries like to cast themselves as saviors, but what they are is operating a deadly double standard. They play by one set of rules, while their former colonies are forced to play by another. Behar went on to say, It's the rich world that owes the global south, the aid they promised decades ago but never gave. The huge cost from climate damage caused by their reckless burning of fossil fuels, the immense wealth built on colonialism and slavery. The U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres continues to advocate for both poor nations to receive aid for development and for wealthy nations, who make up 80% of the global emissions, to cut down on emissions drastically to address climate change challenges. Adam, thank you for the facts of that story. The pro-establishment narrative is our first spin, and it's coming from Washington Post. 
No government in the world has the funds to give developing countries full aid for their transition to clean energy and climate-friendly practices. The UN should be reaching out to development banks that use government funds to encourage economic growth instead. Those same institutions could provide loans that would reduce the risk to private investors. This is the most pragmatic approach the global community and international development system can likely take at the present time. And we're going to wrap up the news today with an establishment-critical narrative on this story provided by Oxford Political Review. Historically speaking, wealthy nations have raided foreign countries and exploited the land and people for their own benefit. Those same nations are now responsible for the damage done in these countries and the damage done to the climate from their pillaging of the earth. International distributive justice is the only path forward to rebuild the colonized and marginalized countries that are now being ravaged by the impacts of restless actions and poor choices made by wealthy giants. Wealthy giants? Is that the problem? Yeah. I mean, you know, they've got that vegetable company, the Green Giant. You know they're rolling it in. Well, we know that. Well, that's one. That's the wealthy green. That's the wealthy green. I guess that's the wealthy green giant. Yeah, that's the wealthy green giant. <laughs> it's called. Yeah. And then, of course, there's brawny paper towels. Oh, that, that's, that's right. The, that's the, Well, there's, that, that would be uh, um, Paul Bunyan, right? Yeah, is, Paul isn't Bunyan. Isn't that Paul yes. Bunyan, basically? That's Paul Bunyan, no, That's yeah, another uh-huh. giant. Mr. Clean. Mr. Clean. Is he a giant? I thought he was just bald. <laughs> Oh, maybe so. I think, yeah, so I think it's just the Paul Bunyan and the then the Jolly Green Giant. Huh? Jolly Green Giant, yeah. Well, they need to pay their darn bills. They really do. I mean, gosh, we buy their peas. <laughs> I bet you their natural gas is a big problem for our uh, our uh, our climate change. <laughs> Harder some of that natural gas to fly your plane. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for May 18th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team that extracts both the key facts that all the articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Eric Steiner, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.